On today's episode of the JRW Audio Experience, I sit down with the modern day gypsy, Mr. Kid. Enjoy. More Love Nation, www.morelovenation.com to cop your swag now. When hate is loud, love must be louder. Wear our clothes as a reminder that we're the ones who love anyways. More love, more empathy, more compassion, more kindness. www.morelovenation.com to support us now. From the bottom of our hearts, any support is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Innocent fucking people. Okay, so like when the when the light-skinned brother in Brooklyn Yo. Park got killed, okay, and got shot up, he was biracial. I consider people in Syria and Lebanon biracial. So if you're considering biracial people black, if black lives matter, 17 innocent people got bombed by one of our allies who were black, and nobody fucking says nothing. But we got young thug, man, who if you look up his criminal background, has did all kinds of shit, man, and Karma eventually caught up with him, and we're gonna burn the city down? So to, so to me, it's, I agree totally what you say. It's like, um, they're promoting, they're working, they're providing the system that keeps all this shit going. But I think their heart is in the right place because I think they feel guilty about it. And this is a way for them to somehow like... I think that represents like a modern day slave lord in a way though. Because like if I'm someone that in my head fictionally believes something, but then I perpetuate and I fund the... They don't go that deep into it though. They don't think about, okay, what, what, what job... Like for example, how can I work at US Bank, man? And say like Black Lives Matter. Exactly. And when when the banking industry is, is perpetuating um, inequality and division and fucking they're ripping people off, but they don't want to look at the root of the problem. The root of the problem is the system. Hundred percent. It's the it's and that's why I, I I'm super interested in this conversation. I talked about it on an episode recently. I did an episode on perpetuating. Are we, are we recording this? Don't yeah. get my ass locked up. <laughs> Yeah, we heard that interview on J-Dub, and you said some things that... You're that cut off. Yeah, Mr. Kill, we need to talk to you. Can you please come to this back room? <laughs> okay, no, but I'm I just sorry, think that on. we perpetuate the problem. Here's my point, is I think that, number one, people, by day, they partake in perpetuating the problem. And what I mean by that is they're not fully committed to the change that they act like they represent and support. And they want to vote for something that makes them feel like they're about equality. But at the end of the day, they're perpetuating the problem in the fact that they're still partaking in the system, the nine to five day job that pays. It's the number one thing that supports the system is the inflow of cash to it that supports it to allow it to continue. And then it gives them the power to fund all the programs and whatever. But I think people are paying the taxes by working that day job because they don't want to sacrifice and they don't want to be selfless and they don't want to truly commit to an alternative lifestyle that they act like they talk about, they represent, that they stand for, but they're not really committing to in their personal life to live alternatively and altruistically to whatever it is that they stand behind and talk about because like me, I personally do not want to pay any taxes. And I the reason I don't want to pay taxes is because I see the truthfulness of the centralized structures of government, of the centralized structures of prison, of the centralized powerful strong men and strong women and strong companies that over extend and control everything and they are creating artificial scarcity of money artificial scarcity of housing artificial scarcity of resources and that is why i don't want to work a day job and i fully commit to being alternative whatever that is so i don't partake in funding that 
or perpetuating that problem. And I don't vote into a system that perpetuates the problem because red feeds blue and blue feeds red. So that's what I don't you think that's a big topic? I said, well, I think you but we can lean into it more or well, do whatever you want to do. I, yeah, I want. I think 50% of what you said, said is the day job part of it. Yeah, um, they don't want to jeopardize their, their day job, but also they don't want to jeopardize their 401k. And the 401k is all based on the stock market. And the stock market is based on corporate America. And our foreign policy is based on protecting corporate American interests. So it's like... I mean, to me, it's real. Having lived in some um, overseas and seeing how um, other country, people in other countries live in this and that, and how messed up and how um, the disparity between like first world and second world and third world countries are. Um, to me, man, like to go to a certain region and try to secure their their minerals or their oil or their natural resources, so our corporations can get it at the low low price and then sell it to our consumers. And that whole system keeps on going. See, to me, that's where the real change has to start. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a complex uh, conversation. But I think that's some really big stuff that you touched on. And I just want to lean into that, the minimalism of other places that you've been, because that's what the two main topics. We're going we're gonna to talk about a lot of stuff, but the two main ones being minimalism and momentum is I think the minimalism of other countries that we can look to as far as the shift from consumerism to minimalistically living is where then those people can find the empowerment and the responsibility and accountability to cash that whatever that is their savings is whatever amount it is in and detach from that system because then you realize that there is alternative ways to live in abundance with less and you it's just about the efficiency of your lifestyle and it's about the efficacy in the manner in which you use your resources to create more or sustain longer with less and i think that's a big topic is the shift from consumerism to minimalism and you i want to hear what you say but you've traveled and seen other places that actually firsthand do more with less or they have to do more with less so don't you think that's a big topic as far as connecting all the dots and moving forward talking about minimalism to what we were talking about in the beginning is the shift from consumerism to minimalism and how we can detach from the system yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, I, I remember when I lived in Haiti, okay? Before I lived in Haiti, I was in downtown Minneapolis, and I used to love my sneaker collection. I had, you know, 14, 15 pairs of shoes, you know, the, the, the closet had the latest designers and this and that, and that was my thing. And I remember about two or three weeks into Haiti, I was um, up on the deck, up on the roof, and I saw these women digging kind of like on the side of the road. And I'm like, and they had these huge five-gallon plastic buckets. And I'm like, what's going on? Uh, you know, they dug things up. They unhooked the plastic pipe. They filled up their um, buckets, five-gallon plastic buckets with water. Okay. They probably ended up filling about seven or eight buckets up. Put everything back together, covered up the dirt on the road, put the buckets on their head and walked back. And I'm thinking, these people don't even have water in their homes. I go to the faucet, man. I turn it on. I'm expecting it every day. That's a need. Yet I take it for granted. But those sneakers, I had to have 13 or 14 pairs. And I started realizing everything that is a need that I just take for granted and don't even think about it. And then I have the, you know, the the, the focus then um, it's, it's on the wants. Well, I want this and I want that. Got to realize, uh, focus on your focus on your needs. And then, you know, once once those are uh, satisfied, you know, maybe get one or two wants, 
but you don't have to go overboard with it. But I think the system wants us to do that because that's consumerism right there. We've got to have it all. We got to have the the big screen TV. We got to have Netflix. We got to have the car. We got to have the uh, iPhone 11 or whatever is going on. I pull out my flip phone with my students and they laugh at it. And I say, I don't need, <laughs> I don't need to post that, that I, you know, <laughs> that uh, my hamburger and French fries on uh, whatever they post it on right now. <laughs> I don't need to show everybody what I'm doing all the time. I just needed to maybe uh, make a phone call or hit a text. But the the flip phone is only uh, $30 and it's only $20 a month. The iPhone is what, $1,200 with the package and everything to get you for another $1,200, $1,300. But they got these kids believing without that iPhone, man, life is worthless. They got them, they got them lost in the sauce. No, man, I think that's some really big stuff that you touched on. And it's, I think, really important to understand the wants, needs, desires, and for us to understand how we can detach from those. And not only detach from, but understand that sat. I would recently do an episode on this saturation and maturation. The organism that needs the most has the most, the organism that needs the least has the most leverage. Because if I'm someone that needs the least, that means that I have the most control over my resources and my time and energy and, and so forth because I'm not needing, wanting, or desiring as much as everyone else. So then I'm more saturated and matured as an organism. And if you look at organisms on a cycle from elementary to mature or saturated or elementary to intimate, exotic, like elevation of self, then you would see that we start off as an elementary particle that doesn't understand our wants, needs, and desires. And we have like a misunderstanding of them. And as we grow up and we become more mature and saturated as an organism, we then start to be able to understand and decipher via perspective of self and our environment, what our wants, needs, and desires truly are. And then we can start to rationalize and practicalize what they are. And and then for me, as I've gotten older, it's become less and less about what I need and living a life as where I have the most happiness and abundance with the least. That is my challenge because then I have all the control and leverage from the system and it gives me complete saturation and maturation of self where instead of attracting and needing and wanting and desiring, I'm actually repulsing and it actually requires an incredible amount of discipline as I'm trying to repulse forces. I'm trying to repulse the need and want and desire to have this or need a woman or to need sex or to need even an energy drink. I find myself... As I'm living in my office and doing all this research, I'm, I'm getting to the point where I even don't want, I want to try and overcome the need and want for even just a drink. And like, it's just the discipline and the level that comes with that as far as the awareness and perspective of wants, needs, and desires is we start to realize as organisms, we really don't need very much. We are one of the most incredibly powerful organisms that's ever existed as far as sustaining and needing the least. And like, when I, I can go, it's, it's amazing what I can do. So it's really cool stuff once you start to lean into that. And then and then the other point was gratitude. Um, my Uncle George was probably in the top three biggest influences. Shout out. Shout out to Uncle G. He's in the rest, grave, right? Rest in peace, yeah. R.I.P. I like to shout out to all our R.I.P. Because we live eternally, man. If we keep people's... If we keep people's uh, personality and truth alive it keeps them somewhat eternal and immortal so yes. r.i.p uncle george uncle george so but uncle george um you know he was he was kind of a uh, um what would be the right he kind of wanted to do things his own way <laughs> for, for the most part but he was in and out of prison probably for half of his adult life um he was a hustler he kind of um did a little some some um uh, 
thieving and, and burglaries and this and that to basically support his drug drug habit, crack cocaine. Um, when he was sober, the most intelligent, um, well-spoken, articulate, could get street smart. Um, just I admired so much about him. But when he when he was smoking, though, he became a different person. Yeah, no worries. I'll keep it going. Okay, yeah, going. I think that's epic, man. I think Uncle George and I can relate to that. I uh, sometimes as organisms, we have to sustain. We have to do what we have to do to sustain. So, I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of people get caught up in the judgment of people for what they did or their dark, their dark times. But I think dark times bring us to uh, being a more awake and aware organism. So, continue about Uncle George. So, the point I bring up Uncle George. So, but in prison, he would write letters and this and this and that. And I used to always be fascinated. I used to watch that lockup MSBC or whatever that is, where they show they go into the prisons and this and that. And you would see some guys in these small prisons about the size of a large bathroom, and everything was immaculate. Beds made, canned goods here. Uh, you know, they would show you how they did their their uh, wash in the toilet. Everything was clean. Some of them, you know. But I used to always be amazed, like how the, how they were able to live on so little, but yet you know maintain a positive attitude. And then Uncle George used to tell me like little things, like um, making uh, what would uh, grilled cheese sandwiches in prison. And he would be like, "D, we used to take the iron, we'd have the bread, we'd uh, uh, a paper bag, uh, put the uh, cheese on there." Uh, put the paper bag over it get the iron out melt the cheese man we throw a little this and this and that and by the time he's done explaining all this man i'm ready to go to and order one of, the, one of these grilled because he made it sound so good but the fact is they were in prison man i mean they were making like um all chili and all kinds of stuff and they were once they made it they were so happy to have it because they didn't want to eat the prison food and this was to them this was like as close as they could get to being in, in, on the outs. But it, um, they were grateful for it. And that's the one thing I'm starting to realize in being in some of these foreign countries too, is you'll see people just um, playing a game of checkers. You know, maybe each of them have their little uh, mango drink and this and this and that. They don't have more than $5 between it between them, but they're grateful for what they got and they're making the most of it. Um, so gratitude is a big thing with minimalism. I think that is epic stuff, and I think I can really relate to that is because I've been in jail cells myself, and there's some big stuff that comes from that. It's the understanding that the less we need, we actually start to realize the more we have, and for me, a jail cell really helped with that, and I think that could help a lot of people is if they actually go and experience that, even if it's for a week or two, but go and have the restriction of only having whatever it depends way what jail you go to but in kentucky i was really restricted i couldn't even get a toothbrush i couldn't do a lot of things in there and once you you have to be creative and you start to be intuitive and you just start to accept this this the circumstances and you start to thrive and flourish in them and i think that's a big topic is wanting and needing less and real and through that we realize that we really have how much we really do have and then second when you were talking about that it made me think about grounded like when you were talking about the story of them making that grilled cheese it just makes me think the more simple things are that we make life the more simple and the more simplistic things are when it comes down to like just food and and those simple things it starts to ground us in the the gratitude grounds us and i think about things like animals and going for a simple thing like a walk and i think about the the interaction and the groundedness it brings me when i'm just looking at a tree or like looking at a leaf and it, it the simplistic power of 
being grounded in a in a moment and i think a big part of being able to be grounded and connected to our ecosystem self and environment is removing all the complexities of life and the forces and pressures and energies that are so complex and controlling that exist in our linear world that are like pushing and pulling us away from that groundedness and away from like that altruistic connection to self and environment that is so simple but also so so powerful so J Dub, let me ask you a question. What would you say the biggest mindset difference is between the guy doing seven years in a little jail cell, but he's keeping his head up, making his bed, and he's, you know, grinding through it, and the person who might be a multimillionaire and they into society, they look like they have everything, but they're drunk, they're depressed, they're on all these uh, medications. What what's the biggest mindset difference between I mean, one person should be happy. One person should be, you know, miserable, but it's like it's flipped. <laughs> the person who's supposed to be miserable seems like he's able to like deal with it. And the person who's supposed to be happy is miserable. Yeah, I think that's super simple. It's just the perspective and relativity that comes from our perspective. So there's, there's three truths to humans. We're, we're energy, we're matter, and we also create our own realities. So we're energy and we're matter and we create our own realities. So the number one thing with what you just asked is understanding that we do create our realities. We subjectively interpret objective circumstances and then we create a subjective truth of our reality. So someone in a jail cell like the guy doing seven years, see, he could be actually someone that's found himself through solitude that has now through being slowed down and brought to a moment of stillness of seven years. If you think about the punishment in our society of stillness, it in a way, the older I get and more educated I get is actually a blessing because stillness can bring us incredible profound solitude that leads us to change and contemplation of self actions and existence and for me that's what solitude brought me so that guy that's doing seven years could actually via that solitude and that disconnect and pause from society and all the complexities and ego and forces of living in, in our society that is so linear and controlling and manipulative he could have found himself and he could have found the simplistic awareness of self and then through finding himself he he sees the light at the end of the tunnel of seven years and he sees opportunity and it's brought him that incredible simplistic gratitude of life and perspective of self and perspective of life and environments and our ecosystem and existence and then the guy that's a multi-millionaire could be caught up in that complete complete life day-to-day hustle and grind of consuming wanting and needing and desiring more and not ever having enough but the guy in the jail cell actually realizes that he's incredibly tough and resilient because he's an organism that has come from the bottom that has sustained through all these struggles battles and strife and he's incredibly resilient and he's never really even had that much but he's always had his resilience he's always had his determination he's always had his perspective and his strength and his determination and through that he realizes oh no matter what life throws at me i'm gonna always be able to sustain even if it's seven years in the pen or whatever if it's coming from the dirt or if it's coming from the mud but the multi-millionaire is never going to be able to have that because it's he's so detached from his ecosystem he's not living in the dirt and he's not living in the natural ecosystem of existence and he's detached and he's pursuing all these extrinsic factors that bring him happiness contentment and joy but the guy is really never going to be able to have it because that's all an intrinsic job so i think it's just all perspective and awareness of our objective circumstances that we interpret via subjective self super super interesting cool stuff i would also throw, throw in their expectations um 100%, that's all that is is expectations yeah 100 i think um we make ourselves miserable a lot of times here in the states because we expect so much you know um 
I'm sure when when you're in the pen and I mean you're dealing with the day-to-day struggle and this and that if somebody if you if you find out you got a little bit of mail man and somebody puts you know twenty dollars on your books it's like hitting a lottery that day man you're feeling because you weren't expecting it yeah so you get comfortable in it and i I can relate is i actually got to a point in the system where i had my own private self i had myself myself and i started had a tv on 24 hours a day and i was eating good and i was living good and it's incredibly can get incredibly comforting right and then the guy making all the money he's expecting those crypto stocks to go up but now it took a hit (laughs) so instead so instead of having that go having you know uh, twenty seven thousand dollars by the end of the month, it's going to be now nineteen. So now his expectations are all messed up of what he thought he was going to have. But a big part is just we expect so much sometimes, and um, I think with humility, man, and gratitude, man, that um, really we're only given this this day, and whatever God brings our way, appreciate it. I think that's a really big topic, expectations, because if you think about it, it's it's everything that we just talked about. Expectations is my, it is expectations is the interpretation of my circumstances and what I expect, want, and desire and demand. And I think a big part of that is, it's our attachment. If you think about what you just said, that guy was someone that attaches their intrinsic happiness to extrinsic factors. Someone like attaches their intrinsic happiness to cars clothes stock money and so forth is someone that is giving the control to an a variable that is outside of their realm of power so for me a big part of my happiness is trying to find the least amount of attachment to extrinsic factors and finding as much attachment to intrinsic self that brings me happiness with the least so i think you're right man expectations and i think the media is a big part of that i think they intentionally as we were talking earlier mr kid about like racism and a lot of the stories and narratives the media creates they feed the narratives of increasing our expectations and wanting and desiring more because that's what keeps this whole like you said keeps this whole wheel going because if you if you reduce people's expectations as you said it would really kind of pause all the all of this yeah and and the last thing i would want to say with minimalism is um uh living in the moment um i shared the story when i went to the um uh, day trading investors seminar and I could make uh, you know I could be rich in a couple years and the guy uh, basically said that when you retire you have to have 20 years of your salary all set up so for you to retire comfortably so you know maybe if I'm lucky enough teaching next year I can make 60,000 so for to him the only way I could retire if I have 1.2 million dollars in a bank because that's going to stretch me out for 20 years and uh he was talking about you know some people getting close to retirement and then they're worrying and this and this and that and i'm sitting here thinking man you're telling me there's people up in chanhassen that got 1.1 million dollars in it but because they don't got 1.3 they gotta take a sleeping aid at night to go to sleep and it's just um it's sick man to think that there's children starving in this world man but we got people based on expectations of what our life needs to be when we retire you know that can't go to sleep and take have to take anxiety meds and uh, but it propels the system, you know, it makes people want to invest in stocks more and want, want to do this and want to do that. And it's uh, it's sad. It's sad. So I would say live in a moment. Just stick to maybe um, two, three years in, in, in the future 
and that i think that should be um and this is coming from an older school guy you know 54 years old because i know this that when i project myself further out into the future it never go it has gone the way i projected and so i don't know what 20 10 20 years is going to look like but i kind of might know what maybe two years could look like so live in the moment enjoy the moment I think that's really big stuff you touch on. That's stoicism, folks. And a lot of stuff that he talks about, I don't know if people realize it, but a lot of the stuff Mr. Kid, the modern-day gypsy, talks about is is stoicism. And, and that stoics and a lot of the stoics of ancient time, they would focus heavily on the now, and they would do that by thinking about death. And when they thought about death, it propelled them to be in the moment, grateful and present because we realized that nothing is promised. No, no moment tomorrow, the next week, or the next month is promised. So I think that's big is understanding that and appreciating it because for me, that really pushes me to then have take action and do things and experience because if nothing's promised, it kind of propels you to a space of like taking action and and motivation and determination because if, if tomorrow, next week or next month isn't promised, like you said, I think that's a really important, I never thought about that before, but so many people are planning like they have, like they, like, like they're guaranteed 50 years. Like, yeah. like, who are we to think that we're guaranteed 50 or 60 years? Well, that's why COVID shook so many old people. They thought they were going to live to be 93. <laughs> but COVID cut them off at 81. So. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, a lot of a lot of us. And what's really crazy is um, I was reading some book and this and this and that. And they were saying, um, you know, kind of different takes on life and death. And they're saying even at many people's funeral, there are some people that actually have are glad to see the person pass away because they're going to get their inheritance. I mean, can you imagine trying to save up all of this money and this and this and that, and your grandkids are actually in the back of their mind thinking, well, when grandpa kicks back, I'm going to get this much money. It, the relationship shouldn't be about that. It should be about what grandpa can give to his younger grandson this knowledge that he has while he's still alive. Th- those gems are greater than, than paper, greater than gold. It's going to get him through life, but it's... Yeah, society's got us twisted, man. I think you touch on some big stuff there, and it's intangible versus tangible. I'm going to lean into that as far as momentum, and we're going to talk about momentum a little bit. And I think a lot of us, we find our determ- we find our determination, our motivation, and our momentum in tangible things. But I think it's the people that intangibly can find motivation and momentum and courage and like determination and focus and momentum from intangible forces. And I've been doing a lot of research recently on quantum physics, and I won't get into some of the heavy stuff, but at the end of the day, a big part of the unanswered questions of our universe and of science are intangible, right? They're invisible forces. They're things like intimate exotic matter. And a lot of our science doesn't answer the question about intimate exotic matter, and it doesn't answer the question about the intangible. And I think there's a big topic for me. A lot of my motivation comes from intangible motivational factors. And... I believe that a lot of our momentum, if we look at it in our society, comes from tangible. And I think that's a big topic because if if we find our motivation and happiness and contentment and determination in extrinsic money, extrinsic cars and clothes, I just don't think it's sustainable. But if it's intrinsic and it's intangible and it's something that is a powerful motivational force that is intangible, it's it can be some of the most powerful atomic forces that exist. And that's where I've done some research on it. I'm connecting the dots is the most powerful atomic matter and energy is actually intangible matter. And it is actually intimate and exotic love and dark matter and dark energy. So it makes sense when you think about it. 
if you start to think about momentum and, and you start to think about energy and determination and courage, what is more motivational than love? So I want to hear what you think about momentum and you you're talking about your life and I want to talk about my life some too, but like in your life, where have you found the most momentum and when have you noticed like it stop and it peak and it like for me, cause mo- all my momentum, most of it has come from intangible forces. Um, well, as a younger person, the whole momentum was, you know, to try to get the American dream, to get the duplex, to, you know, to, um, have some money in the bank and this and that. Um, so as a younger person, you know, I, I had momentum then, you know, for the wrong reasons. I think, uh, when I lost momentum though, was when I, I turned 47 years old, which was the same age that my mom had passed away, which was, you know, an important RIP again. That's right. Eleanor Kid Waddell. Uh, so I, so 47 years old, um, uncle George, uh, was, was, was killed by the police, but he was also doing some things too, that he shouldn't have been doing, but that's another story. Um, my mentor in Brazil, um, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Um, my, my dream job in Brazil, American school, Rio de Janeiro ended up being the most unorganized and unprofessional school I worked at. And it's like everything that I had, like the people that I have valued and like the goals that I, I was trying to attain, everything kind of unraveled. They let me go at the American school because of the, the Brazilian, um, the problem with the economy at that time. And then it was like, uh, you know, it was like, what is, is it even worth it? I, I, you know, I got this far. I thought at this age, you know, everything would be great and everything most important people to, um in my life now are, are, are gone or are dying the job that i really wanted to have turned out to be a flop and i just was like man i kind of gave up you know uh i didn't realize it at the time but dude i just took two years i didn't work man i traveled i smoked a lot of weed i drank a lot man and just reflected and i lost momentum and then um it hit me though it's like i try try to view life like as a movie like i'm sitting back watching myself as a main character and like you know we're like an hour and a half into the movie and this is what i become (laughs) i'm living in this basement apartment beer cans and the bong you know and all this and that and um i'm like man this is kind of a bad kind of a depressing sad ending do i want my ending to be like this and i'm like no this isn't this is i didn't come this far to end for the movie to end like this so Ended up going back into international teaching Haiti, left the comfort zone, went back to Haiti and then dealt with some issues there, but slowly got the momentum back and kind of came to the conclusion like that, um, that I still have more to offer to young people in my teaching than to end up, man, you know, being kind of a a burnt out, you know, has been teacher and this and that. So I'm slowly getting my momentum back. And right now it's basically, you kind of mentioned it, um, trying to leave leave something for the younger people you know maybe some of my words of wisdom or some of my teaching i teach economics i'm starting to realize man that they got us chasing the wrong carrot you know and i wish i wish i had a teacher um my when i was yeah 18 or yeah 17 an alternative perspective exactly somebody at 17 or 18 that said you know what this is all great but there's also another way to do it so because it would um if i would have had those seeds planted at that young of an age it went to took me 20 or 30 years to figure it out on my own. So that's kind of my goal right now. You know, maybe get back in international teaching, you know, maybe uh, Southern Florida, you know, teach down there. Um, but but I think getting back in the classroom, being away from it now for a year and a half because of the pandemic, so-called pandemic, um, 
I'm going to what goes back to expectations. I'm going to appreciate it because I had lost it. And I was always expecting to expected to have a good teaching job and this and that realized it can be taken away at any moment. So I think that's really cool stuff because I think I can relate to a lot of that. And a lot of what my podcast has brought me, I didn't realize it until I started doing it, is the ability to be the student, but also a teacher. And a podcast forces me to always be a student and always be a teacher. And what I mean by that is if I'm going to return on a microphone and I'm going to broadcast, I'm I'm damn sure going to spend time researching and educating myself so I don't look like a fucking idiot. So a lot of my time is spent on actually via doing something that is selfless, it leads to selfish gain, right? Because if I focus entirely on selflessness and something that is focused on being a teacher for others that brings value forward freely, then it completely forces and propels me into a space of having to learn and remain a student. And when I'm always researching and researching and detaching from subjective self and learning on my podcast to broadcast, it's forced me to a space of optimization and growth and improvement that I never realized and it's a really interesting incorporation of it at scale and communicating with people all around the world just with a microphone because it's forced me to remain a student, but it's also forced me to be a teacher. And it's a really cool, intimate, exotic, unique balance. And I think you touched on a lot of cool things. And I think immortality is one of them and leaving something for someone. And the more I learn about and educate and research is I really think that we can already leave an immortal like you shout out to your mom rest in peace Eleanor you shout out to Uncle George rest in peace Uncle George and I was recently starting a new show called the Weirman Woggle Show and I think there's something big about putting your conscience and putting yourself out there in some kind of creative realm and sense like when I turn on Mac Miller's music shout out to R.I.P. to Mac Miller he in a way is still living and immortal and I think there's a way that I see this and people don't think about it, but I think we can already be immortal. And if we download our consciousness and we're authentic and transparent and vulnerable and we turn on and record the video or the or the audio of what we believe, what we represent and what we stand for and live, we can in a way, if we download that and share that freely in a transparent, authentic fashion, already somewhat become immortal because we're permanently downloading something to the matrix, which is audio and video, which represents our permanent eternal presence. And I think that's really big because I was connecting the dots recently and I'm like, wow. So if I died tomorrow, someone could turn on my podcast and they could, they could be with me or they could for a moment feel like they are with me. And I think that's really cool. And that's why I think I started that show is because I wanted to have a show that incorporates immortality of people's past that has music that they created or some kind of like Prince and Mac Miller. And I wanted to play their music as an intro and outro to the show. And then in in a way of their eternal self, like living forever. And I think that's big. That's something that really motivates me a lot now is doing exactly what you said is trying to like share something with the world or others that brings them value. Yeah. Once you say that you so I want to hear what you say, but don't you say that you've learned a lot for me being a student and teacher on the podcast has helped, but like from your students, wouldn't you say it's an interesting dynamic? I want to hear your perspective. But like a lot of times we think we're the teacher and really we're the student and the teacher. And I think that's an interesting thing. I want to hear what you say as a teacher. Wouldn't you say you've learned a lot in a way from your students as you're teaching them, you're also the student? Yeah, and I think I'm at the point finally where I'm starting to appreciate it because, you know, my uncle Dave, down in Brazil, man, he was shout out, shout out to Uncle D, was uh, he was a high school custodian, and I think he only went to the twelfth grade, but um, t- 
two things about him. He um, would listen to people when he talked, and when he, he and he was also a critical thinker. So you would say something to him, and he wouldn't say much. And then maybe a few days later, a conversation would come up, and he's like, "Oh, I was thinking about something what, that you said, and I wanted to respond this way." And he would always say it with a few words, but like gems of wisdom, this and that. And the thing I'm realizing is um, now that I'm getting to a certain age is. Okay, I'm I'm 54 years old. I'm out in front of the classroom and this and that. But I got 20 students. So their collective knowledge in years is a lot more than me. You know, um, I can learn things from them. And especially um, with technology and like um, new ideas and new things. You've even hit me some to, to some things. You know, as we get older, we start thinking, okay, man, you know, I know how the game is played and this and that. I'm playing PlayStation 1, man. The world's on PlayStation 5 right now. And like when you threw this modern monetary theory at me and this and that, I've got to I got to start looking into stuff like that. When you say, no, Mr. Kid, the world's moving this way, you know, okay, I can be that dinosaur and say, no, it isn't. But I got to start listening to young people. So, yeah, they educate me. You know, they do educate, yeah, to what's really going on in these, in these streets and what's really going on with technology and what's really going on with their, in the, what's going to be their future. Because I think that's really cool because if I think about being a teacher, right, I personally, from my perspective, think it would be incredibly interesting. Like, I, I love bouncing things off you because I think it's an incredible measurement or metric to be have access to is that is the youthfulness and the in a, a room full of kids, right? Like. I know. I just think teachers have a unique ability to connect to culture and tap into it. And for me, like, I just think it's really interesting the perspective of being a teacher and the in the tools and the and the insight and perspective it can give someone because you have the, you have the youth and you have the culture right in front of you every day and you have tons of them. So I can imagine that there's a lot of value that would come from not only teaching them but also just paying attention to what they talk about, what they do, and being like, oh, this makes sense. This is what culture is like become. Yeah. Um, who was it, man? The Socratic method of teaching also where um, I'm starting to realize, too, is that um, the kid. OK, I can teach economics and I can give them, you know, theories and show them how to do graphs and this and that. Um, and that's one part of education. But it's another part of education, I think, with economics, which is the study of choices and, you know, money and how, you know, what you're going to do as far as a career, blah, blah, blah. But um, a part of it goes back to core values. So if I can ask the right question, they can critically think. And at a young age, man, maybe to tap into their core values of like, what do they really believe in? You know, and. At what age do most of us figure out what our core values is? Some of us never do. Some of us might when we find out we got a terminal illness. But man, if 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 some if a teenager at the age of seventeen and eighteen can kind of figure out like one, two, or three things that's really really important to them, and then base build on that foundation. Um, what I try to um, impart to my kids in economics is like, um. It's not uh, no matter what you see in the media and this and this and that. It's not about money. I have kids telling me, I always say how much money is enough money. I've had kids saying five, five hundred million dollars, this and this and this and that. And so everything. Yeah. And these kids come from money. So like a million dollars, they're like they're thinking, damn, what did we go bankrupt? And we had to file and we all only left with them. These kids come from families with money. So they're talking about um you know how much money they want to have by the time they're you know 30 or 40 years old but the as we get older what an interesting metric i mean that's just super interesting to think about like 
if you're a teacher and you ask that simple question, how much money is enough money to your, your students? Like that is super cool that you ask that. And then just paying attention to that. Like if our youth is saying 500 million and it's a common theme that all these, their core value is more money, more money, more money, more money. Like that is profound to me that we've instilled that in our, in our youth and our culture. Like, because that is that's that completely to me says the opposite of what our core values and what our children and kids should be saying if we're teaching them properly they'd be like oh it shouldn't be about how much i have it should be about once i have enough and i'm fully saturated and matured and i have and i'm taken care of now giving it to other people and sharing that with other people like picture like an overflowing sink or of water and you have you're full like you have your needs met you have shelter you have food you have clothes and you're thriving right now it becomes about other people and it comes about helping and being a value and service to your community and i think that's what you think you should hear more like i want to hear a kid raise his hand and say actually it's not about how much money i make it's about having enough and needing the least and then i can go out there and i can help give to others that are living in much lower worse circumstances in third world countries because there's much more people out there outside of america that need a lot more help than we do folks and you've touched on it so that's really interesting perspective well that's where it comes down to core values is it materialism or is it helping others so when you peel peel the uh layers of the onion eventually that's what the the basic question is is it materialism or is it helping others um if you don't figure out how how much money is enough money it's you're never going to have enough money because you're going to get that meal, you're going to want two. You got the two, you want 10. You got the 10, you got 100. So at some point, you got to say, God, all I wanted at this age was this much. Everything else, I'm going to try to help other people. I'm going to try to do other things. So you got to figure out how much is enough money. Figure out what your core values is. And like you say, after that, everything else is just, you know, um, blessings that you can try to somehow help society or help another person with. Totally agree. And I think that this correlates to something I want to touch on as we start to wrap up this episode is a competitive society versus collaborative society. And we are actually going to be shifting from a competitive society to a collaborative society. And if you think about it, it just makes sense. A a society and an ecosystem that is uniform and cooperating is the one of, of ultimate superposition, right? If you picture a society that is competing and for resources and competing with each other, that is actually trying to get to a space where they all have equal equality and abundance would be one that shifts to com- collaboration and cooperation and co- continuity. And that's the opposite of competition. So all the stuff that we're doing right now is the complete opposite of what we need to be doing in the future, which is collaboration, needing less, wanting less, desiring less, and shifting from competition to collaboration. And the whole system feeds the competition of competing for money, competing for housing, competing for resources, when really there's so much housing available that we could distribute, if we distribute it efficiently and we operate efficiently and we have efficacy in our distribution of resources, there will be more than enough houses in America to house the homeless. So there's more than enough houses. There's more than enough resources when it comes to what we need. It's just a matter of the distribution of it and not having egotistical people create bottlenecks and create limited access to resources. The reason that 
people go crazy over inflation, people calm down. Inflation is just increase in prices. And you can have an increase in pl- in prices and there can still be an abundance of the resource. It's just the supply and demand of it because of the disconnect and discontinuity. If you have X, Y, and Z competing and saying they'll pay this, but Z only has that, then you're going to have a fluctuation in, in the availability of those resources for the people that have less. But the people that have all the money and have all the access to resources are not going to ever have an issue when it comes to buying or consuming or finding a resource. It's just the people at the bottom that have the issues. So don't let like, and at the end of the day, if I'm at the bottom, the prices are irrelevant. A lot of people are poor and they let inflation scare them. But if I don't have any disposable income or I don't have any money in the first place to buy those resources, the prices of it become irrelevant. And then secondly, if I'm someone that's living minimalistically, the prices become irrelevant, right? I'm sitting in my studio here and the more I gain awareness and perspective, I realize I'm not buying, consuming a lot of this stuff that goes up in price. So once you understand that you're shifted and you have perspective and awareness and you're not buying and buying and consuming and consuming, you start to realize the irrelevance of price and inflation because I'm getting my $600, $700 a week and I'm saving 90% of it. And when I do that, I realize I'm not partaking in the system. So the system's pricing and inflation becomes irrelevant. A lot of us let the media and then talking about things control and scare us and manipulate us when really at the end of the day there's an abundance our universe is abundant it's the people within the universe that create the limited access to sources and resources that creates the scarcity of them so at the end of the day that's some pretty cool interesting stuff but i would like to hear what you say as far as like scarcity and artificial scarcity that's created by capitalistic systems and powerful strong men strong women and like the limited access that people get to resources you broke it down, J Dub. <laughs> Just like my actually, my man Sean Harden. Um, Who? Sean Harden. He's a he's a. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes the weirdest people come up with some ideas. And you, just because you're weird, you're like, man, that's some weird stuff. But he was the first one that brought um, artificial scarcity to like <clears throat> made me conscious of it. And then like the more I started looking at it and thinking about it, I'm like, <laughs> he's got a point. You know, I mean. They create, there's more than enough to go around, but they make it seem like there's not. Um, I was just going to say something, because I'm sitting here, I don't know, like, your audience, you know, what the demographics is and this and that. Okay. All over the world, Mr. Kid. Yeah, but see, we're also two single men with no kids. So it's easy for us to kick back and say, well, you know, just tighten your belt, save this and save that and be a, be a minimalist. I think it would be tough, and this is why I'm I, I, working with young people. I think the problem is, is when you realize all of this information, but maybe you got two or three kids now and then you've got credit card debt and you've already fallen into the, the, you know, the fictional story of family, sex and reproduction. Yeah. Well, but yeah. But um, what is it? Fifty percent of the marriages end in divorce. So there's a lot of single parents out there. There's a lot of dads out there with child. You know what child support takes out of your check, man? Dude, don't if you have like three different kids by three different women you're maybe getting 20 25 percent of your income so it's like how can you live well you got to live minimalistically but how can you ever save and get out of that um well okay let me throw it back at you let's say i'm okay mr kid is you know got a couple kids man by two different women they're taking half of my check you know um you know that they took my license away i can't drive i'm trying to get out of this pit what words of advice would you give me I don't know, man. You touched on a really big topic there, though. You're right. And we are two single men. And I'm very thankful 
and I think there's a big topic here as far as the contentment of being alone and not letting the fictional story of sex, marriage, reproduction, and etc. control you to have to have kids. And I feel like a lot of us, like you just said, are completely created and thrown into that position because we let that fictional story overpower us. And I think it's a great perspective to have. I was blessed at a young age to see that I didn't want to get married right away out the gate. And I didn't want to be tied down because being married to someone else's ideas and beliefs and ideologies is one of the most it's one of the most hindering things and actions someone can take. If I marry someone else and I marry their family, I marry their ideas and their beliefs and their principles and their core values, that is a fucking big fucking deal. Like there's so many people that don't even realize how much they've withdrawn and held themselves back by doing that. So for me, I think that's a big topic there. That's a whole other episode. We could talk a whole episode about the fictional story of that. But I think number one for that person is I would talk about the fact that in a way, I want to say thanks to my dad and thanks to my mom. I think in a way you're actually doing yourself, I mean your child or your family a disservice by not staying altruistic to this theme. And my mom and dad, shout out to Ben Weirman, did a great job of this. And I never realized it, but they they, they always gave me love and they always supported me if I fell down. But they never gave me, they never filled my cup. What I mean by that is they never gave me enough to completely be good. Like they always were challenging me to get it on my own. My dad was always giving me a little bit of help and a little bit of push and a little bit of support, but he was never really fully filling my cup. And I think as a dad, whether you have those kids now or whatever you, whatever position they are in, yeah, it's, I can't really speak to it at the end of the day, but my what I would do is I would actually give my kids less, but I would give them unconditional love and unconditional support. If they fall down, scrape their knee and make a mistake, I'll be that support and system that helps them back up, but I'm not going to be the one that fills their cup. And I think that you actually will see that they'll become a much stronger, more capable, full self if you actually aren't the one that's fully filling their cup, but you're just helping sand the cup up when it falls over or it spills. And then you're putting a little bit of water in it and giving it life again. And I think that a lot of our parents in America are fully filling their kids' cups and they're doing it selfishly because it makes them feel like they have some some meaning or reason to exist and like they're doing good. But really, if you fully fill your kids' cup, you're not really doing them any service. So I would say... I don't know. I'd, I I simply say love your kids and let them exist and make decisions and fuck up. I just don't think that you can really give your kids anything. When I have kids, I'm not going to give them shit. Besides, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I besides totally, love. Yeah, yeah. I feel exactly what you're saying. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just I, I know that there's a lot of cats, man. North Minneapolis, where I grew up, my age, man. At um. But that's at the end of the day a bigger topic of selfishness. Yeah, yeah. I would just go back to to the end of the movie thing. It's like, you know, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want your movie to end, man? And and okay, so you may never be financially secure and this and that, but being a a, a loving, caring father who is always there, yeah. that means a whole lot more than man having a lot of money in your four hundred one k or your savings account. So present and loving you're so right at the end of the day people are going to remember the person more than any of the money more than anything if you think about kids what do they remember they remember when you showed up for your birthday they remember when you showed up and you loved them and you showed up and you showed up the parent like shout out to my mom lisa marie king the reason i she showed up all the time that's the number one reason nothing else mattered because she was always present and showed up and loved and i think you just hit it on the head that that's the ultimate legacy 
Like there's no other legacy that someone can live that's more powerful and influential than someone that shows up in everyone's life and loves and supports them. And there's like no other, there's nothing that's more evolutionary and legendary than that in my opinion so i think that's some big stuff and then i just want to wrap up a little bit with and touch on maybe your perspective of um like for me a lot of my change i'll try and be mild with this a lot of my change has come from accountability and responsibility and the first step in any of my change has always been owning my part in the dysfunction or owning my part in the chaos or owning my part in the problem and as a convict that's been in handcuffs and been in jail and you shout out to Uncle George that was killed by the cops, I personally, firsthand from experience, would say that I never was not responsible for putting myself in any of those environments or arenas where I ended up in a jail cell or handcuffs. So when I look at these people that get shot and killed, I'm not going to mention skin color because that's what the media wants us to do. I just think we need to look at people more as people and they're uniform people. And we need to talk about people, not skin colors, not differences. And I think that when people are shot and killed by cops, whatever skin color, ethnicity or background, I first need to take a sp- accountability and responsibility for the fact that I put myself in that space to be killed and shot because I either was breaking the law, I was conducting some kind of mischievous, or I was around some kind of mischievous, and I was and then secondly, I wasn't following orders, or I wasn't listening, or doing as asked, or as instructed. So for me, that is a big topic, and I think accountability is where change comes. So don't you think a lot of the change when it comes to our society, when it comes to the system and cops and law enforcement is actually more about us changing as a, as a society so the cops aren't having to feel like they have to shoot and kill people. Like if you think about the problem with cops, like what if you just eliminated the, the fact the cop ever had to interact with someone? Then there would never be someone shot. Do you get what I'm saying? I want to hear your perspective on that. Well, it goes back to the root of the problem. You know, what's really the, you know, the the killing, the police killings and all of that is a symptom of what's deeper problems in our society. Um, it's, um, Mr. Kid has this fun Friday video every Friday with the kids. <laughs> and if administration saw maybe a third of the videos I played, it'd probably uh, write me up. But I show a video by Chris Rock. How uh, how not to get your ass kicked by the police? Have you ever seen that one? Yeah, I, I want to come sit in on a class, man. <laughs> Every Friday, so yeah, it's a video just saying like, you know, have you ever been pulled over and thought, am I gonna get my ass kicked? By? And he says basically what you you say is like, if you're not doing illegal shit, probably ninety nine percent of the time you have nothing to worry about. It's only when you're engaging in these activities um, that you know you probably have something to worry about. Now, there's always that one percent factor. As we said before, I think um, being biracial, man, I, I've I've seen um, I've had a unique experience. I mean, I've I've had Thanksgiving dinner with the kid side of my family, the white fat side of my family in Osseo, Minnesota, and I've gone down, man, into uh, Mississippi and Tennessee and kicked it with the black side of my family. That's so badass, yeah. So I've had both. I've seen both sides of the, the spectrum, north and south, north and south, man. And um, so I think it's it's a unique perspective. Um, but anytime we talk about race, I think it gets really emotional. And as we say, a lot of t- I mean, um, a lot of times the logic and uh, um, si- yeah, and being calm and try to you know like have a conversation, man. It, it, it's like you talk about somebody's family, you talk about somebody's it, it, it gets racial or somebody's uh, religious belief, man. It can get real confrontational real quick because it's it, those are emotional issues, um, and. <laughs> 
that's a big topic. That's yeah. subjective self. That's what people need to remove from the conversation. We need to be principled over personalities, but that's the whole issue. People need to detach from their their personality and themselves in a conversation to be principled and objective and not subjective. If you think about emotion versus IQ, IQ is objective and detached from our subjective ego and self and our personalities. And we're leaning into the IQ of principles and objectiveness. So, I mean, that's huge. I agree with you, but I want to keep hearing what you have to say about that. So how do you think we can bring that to people? <laughs> um, I, at this, I think it comes down to um, a couple things. I think it comes down to true education. Um, what is that critical thinking? What is that? No, the, the whole critical race history or whatever you've heard about that new thing they're talking about where with the uh teaching of history yeah you've heard about this right yep, yep okay yeah so i we i think we need to truly educate the youth okay so yeah there's some things that's been pretty messed up man like the europeans did and this and that but i like i tell my students and this is why i don't want to teach history because I, i'd probably get thrown under the bus real quick like when i was learning about the slave trade um i didn't really learn truly the, about the tr slave trade until I think it was later on in college and I think I might have even had to pick up the book like I always believe that you know um, white people went into the deep dark jungles of Africa and just started grabbing brothers and sisters and like throwing them on the ships and then like I found out you no know, there was a war be going on between the tribes and they needed guns from the Europeans yeah so they got their own people traded their people for for guns and then but it's kind of interesting because if you look in the hood right now look at all the gun black on black violence with guns it's like just three four hundred years removed you know um but they never implicated like africans in the slave trade with the education so i think i think when you boil it all down there is um a lot of messed up things about all races and all uh, cultures uh, that we have done um but there's also a lot of good and i think you need to like truly educate and show the good and the bad but also try to get beyond that like okay we're all human beings exactly. and, and and try to accept it and detach from the resentment of our past exactly that makes total sense if you think about what you're painting it's a picture of truthful transparent education of history but at the same time you're going to lean into the acceptance of inexactness ambiguities of humans and we're not going to hold on to the resentments and the history we, we can if you're someone that's really principled and educated and you elevate you're going to detach from the resentments of our past and the resentments of our historical narratives and you're not going to hold on if you're a native to the fact that your ancestors were slaughtered you're not going to resentfully be racist against white men because your ancestors were slaughtered decades and decades and centuries ago and then you're going to be able to accept the reality of the truth of the transparency of your education and the neutrality of it but you're going to also accept the inexactness and ambiguities of humans because as you said we all have flaws and make mistakes and we all do bad things and we all do great things so it's just a neutrality of it and where does where does forgiving come into the picture we got to learn how to forgive people I think that's a big part of forgiving, yeah. but not forgetting. I think that's yeah. I think that is the balance of all of this right. is you forgive, but you don't forget and you right. still remember and you're still educated to it, but you're not holding on to the resentment or the hate or the anger of it. And you're living in the neutrality of IQ. And I think this all comes back to full circle of quantum physics I talk about is the neutrality if we're moving to a neutral universe and a universe of neutral uniform organisms will be one that is uniform in neutrality and it's not positive or negative it's not plus or minus it's not competing and they're not judging or being judged and they're not less or more than and they're not someone that's angry or mad 
They're objective and they're uniform. And if you're objective and uniform and you lean into your transparent truth and history, I mean, it just starts to lead to a lot of really good principled conversations. And I think that's really important stuff. So then you take that side of it, but then you go back to like, why was most of this stuff happening between the natives, you know, get they're getting their land taken and Africans and slave materialism. It's all ego. Economics, really. It's ego. Yeah. It's competition and it's economics. It's control of resources. Yeah. Control of power. The whole uh, limited scarcity brainwashing idea. So then you got to reteach the young people like how to view scarcity, economics, capitalism and all of this and how that to me, man, it's really about (laughs) capitalism and the haves and the have-nots than it is about race i think that really trumps totally but um you throw race in there it gets emotional i think you touch it though on the head mr kid is it comes back to a truthful education that's where all this change because we don't have we don't have an education system that is truthful that is truly like if me and you all of a sudden had all the money in the world and we could start a program like this we would start a program like i would talk i would start talking to the kids at the youngest age possible about self-awareness and about these big principled things and the and i would simplify it as much as possible and then i would let them contemplate and think about it but i think you should be simplifying education and you could be making it as in truthful and transparent and historical as possible and teaching these exact principles and i think it should be done as soon as possible and we should remove all these other complexities of education that talks about and teaches all these other things and we should just lean into also the the like subjective education of what kids enjoy and if this kid doesn't like that this kid likes that we you focus on that but i don't think our education system in any way is is that is that truthful transparent education system yet but it's hopefully going to get there i don't know um you know i think we spend more probably more money in education than any country in the world and look at the results we get i mean it's almost incredibly inefficient you almost wonder if they're paying the people to actually fail you know paying they're paying these educators and these administrators on on a macro level to, to to produce a failing product that would make sense if you think about it, right? Because if they didn't really, if the education system is the way it is and it's centralized and they don't, and they want to, and the problem perpetuates the problem, the system that's in power perpetuates the problem, right? They don't want to, if I'm the person that's part of the system that's centralized, I'm not going to try and create the solution that's insurgent, that's going to re- replace me or remove my need. I'm going to want to perpetuate the problem that I claim to be the answer to. And that would make total sense because then you would be perpetuating the problem. You would be teaching and feeding the problem. And then you would be limiting their ability to become the solution. And that that's a really interesting perspective. And I, I think that makes total sense in a way. Yeah. Because then if you, were, if you were someone that was coercive and a monopolist and you were a part of the centralized structures of, of that, you would do exactly that. You would create inefficient educational systems that are creating in, inefficient products that aren't capable of unifying, collaborating, communicating, and coming together to overpower and replace you. You know what I'm saying? It's just like people don't want to accept it, but the easiest way to compare this to is slavery. Like if you look back at slavery, it tells us so much. It tells us they limited slaves' ability, and what they would do is they would, we really need to lean into this, they would deprive them of their energy and their education. They would take slaves and they would give you monotonous, odious tasks to deprive your energy and deplete your energy, which is your primary resource. And then they would also deplete your ability to learn and educate and like 
learning and education allows you to then deviate from the mean and contemplate things and have consciousness and have perspective. And if you look at our modern day system, and it in many ways is it's just that it's just in a modern day egotistical fashion and it's hidden, but they use mo- monotonous, odious tasks whether it's a job at uh, McDonald's or wherever to deprive us of our energy. And then they have a system. If you create the, the fictional truth and just contemplate it for a moment where they're controlling the education system and limiting our ability to deviate from the mean by limiting our ability to learn and fully develop our dynamic perspective of self and our environment, then that would be modern day slavery, depriving our energy and depriving our ability to learn and deviate from the mean through education. So in many ways, that makes total sense if I was someone that was trying to control people. And that makes, you know what I'm saying? So I I think a lot of times, yeah, I I agree with what you're saying. I I think, um, you know, a lot of we're teaching these kids. Now, granted, we need to know um, calculus and we need to know astronomy and we need to know the verbs and the adjectives and this and this and that. But what if we... My guess is back in like the Roman times and this and that, when they educated their leaders, and I'm pretty sure because I read a little bit of Stoicism, it was about honesty, virtue, truth, and empathy. And at an early age, man, we instill, we taught the kids Simple honesty, virtue, virtue, empathy, and truth. And then as they got older, then if they wanted to get into physics, if they wanted to get into this, if they wanted to get into that, but we never teach them core values, but we teach them a lot of shit that, excuse my French, mm-hmm. we teach them a lot of stuff that they never really will use, but we don't really teach them, you know, the true important things about what it means to be human. So we got to we gotta change up, I think, our educational system. We got to start looking um, economics from a, maybe it's the mo- modern monetary theory, but we got to look at it. There's enough to go around for everybody. Um, everybody needs to have a certain living standard. Uh, you know, some of the, some of these people with some of this money they're making. I mean, when you start looking at what did, I read, someplace like the top one percent of the um, American, the wealthiest American population owns ninety percent of the wealth in the United States. I it's mean, so bad. It's yeah. called a high. So it's called a high ROG economy, and that's mm. exactly right. So when you look at it, our economy has. If you picture an economy, right, Mister Kid, that. We're, we're, we're mature. We're maturing in a way. If you picture an industrialized nation, a country that starts from zero and it becomes developed and industrialized and then it has all these jobs and robust creation and a con- picture a country that then matures and it leverages technology, you're going to get to a point where it, it's called secular stagnation, where a, con- a country or a nation is matured in its industrialization and production and it starts to use technology to produce things and rather than humans. And it's just... It's called secular stagnation, and it's a really big topic. It's where you get to a point of maturation where your growth becomes somewhat stagnant or incremental, and it is for a long period of time. And Larry Summers is a Harvard professor that wrote the secular stagnation theory, but it's called a high R low G theory, and it's where you have a high return on capital. Return is R, return on capital investments in a low G economy, which is a low growth economy. And if you look at our economy on average, it grows like two to three to four percent a year. And they're saying it's going to be much higher this year because of the influx of spending by the government. But outside of that, traditionally, our economy has grown by two to three percent a year, which is a low growth, low G economy. And then capital, people that have a large capital, a large sum of money or assets sitting somewhere typically grows anywhere from five to nine percent. So once you understand that, that means that people 
that exponentially have capital are going to continue to take a larger slice of the pie. So if you picture this sink, or if you picture it like a sink, right, a larger share of the of the of the water. If you picture like the economy like a sink, where the the government spends money into the sink, and that's opening the valve of money to the sink, and then you look at an economy as taking money out of the sink and taxes as taking money out of the sink, then. There's a large percentage, as you said, whether it's 1% or less or 0.1% that are taking an overwhelming amount of that slice of that or the the majority of that water. So then there's a large portion of the population, 98 to 99%, that are left with a really secluded pile of water and, and resources and money and access to gain that money. And that makes total sense when you think about it. So at the end of the day, that is that is exactly what you just said. And that's fucking that's so simple. That's scary. That's scary. Imagine where they're not spending enough money into the system where no one can even have access to the money because it's going to all that 1% or 0.1%. And what's what's happening, I think, too, is that it's creating bubbles in our society. Like, when I say bubbles, I mean, like, if you have enough bread, man, and you're not on these mean streets every day, you don't really know what's going on. Word on the street. (laughs) Word on the street. I mean, I read, you know, I read the business section um, of the Star and Tribune and this and that. And, you know, they talk about, you know, oh, um, I like it. yeah, unemployment, you know, it's looking better and the economy grew by this much and they're predicting this and that. And, you know, we've turned the corner and I'm like, have you been riding public transportation, man? Have you driven down the freeway going into downtown Minneapolis and seen all these tents up in, you know, all these homeless people? Um have you, have you talked to some people out here? But if 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 all the only place you get your information is from the mass media and you're living out in a nice neighborhood, you, you have no idea what's going on. So we're living in like two different realities. We're living in like the people who have it that don't need to, to deal with all the problems and the this and that of society. And then you're living with a lot of people who don't have it that really sees what's going on. I got into a debate with a buddy of mine. Um, That's so true. It's like false fabricated environments and people are detached from the dirt. They're detached from the reality. I got into a debate with a buddy of mine and I said that black people, if you grew up in the hood, man, you've got an obligation, man, to come back and spend some time in the hood because if you grew up and you moved out to Edina and you got your job in the insurance or the banking and this and this and that, you can't complain about how bad it is for black America right now because you don't know what's really going on. You know, and he said, well, no, you, you don't have to go back to the hood and you don't have to do this. And that. And then I'm like, how do you really know what's going on if you claim to care about black people? If you don't go back to black communities, you know, if you don't. So that's that's a whole nother conversation. But that's um, I think it's important, at least as me as an educator. And that's why I think I've got. Yeah, I, this is why I've lived and I've worked in, in these in poor countries, because I want to see how the majority of people have it man half the world may what lives off of three dollars a day half yeah but if we're in the states we don't even think about that and that's why when like think people- how delusional that is that means we're living like kings a lot of us yeah in, in the u.s they don't we don't even realize it we're living in a matrix and that's why when people are like protesting and all of this stuff and i'm like you're protesting and you think you got it bad here you ain't really gonna like it in these other places but we don't even think about it because we don't i mean we might be flipping through you know we don't even use cable anymore but we're flipping through the channels and then we see like a an, an, an ad for unicef and we see some kids you know is all looking all rough man got the flies on them we're thinking that's fucked up and we hit the we hit the next button and it's on and that's the that's the exposure we got i would say a part of if mr kid was um 
as far as like a big wig in the educational system, I would take start taking our some of our students and you know how they have the Peace Corps, but do it for young people. Get out Empirical. to Empirical. Yeah. Yeah, have them ex- be in it. And you touch on so much big stuff there, Mr. Kid, the modern day gypsy as always. But you touched on distance, proximity, and interaction. And it, no matter what, folks, it's hard to have empathy, have any kind of accurate measurement or perception of something if you're distant from it, if you're not sharing proximity and you're not interacting with it on a regular basis or being a part of it, because that is empirical. Empirical science means you have to experience the stimuli of something to really know and understand and have truth. And I think that's a big part of what a lot of our problems are in our society are derived from is we have these illusions of what we want to a lot of people have illusions and interpretations and they have opinions on things that they've never once shared space with or interacted with or experienced. You know how many kids in college I've talked to recently? I was one when I was uh, last year, actually, I was living at the hostel and there was all these college kids that had all this in- in- insight and perspective on stuff. And guess what? They never once any of them had experienced anything they talked about and i'm like who are i would get in these debates with them i'm like who are you guys these yuppie white kids from northern minnesota who are you to have a perspective and a and an opinion on something that you've never even really experienced or been through or done like that is so profound to me how many kids in our media does this to them is like you said they'll they're going and protesting and they don't even realize how good we have it like they have them caught up in this illusion and delusion of like inequality and in in unfairness and it's like we have it incredibly good in america yeah. better than 90 percent of the world so like i just think it's interesting how people then micro focus on the bad things and yeah there's things that need to improve but man i think they have done a really good job mr kid of uh of like getting this the youth and the culture to like believe in what they want them to believe well, that, that's why, you know, you see my page, Facebook post. I'm always in these mean streets. You got to be in these mean streets to see what's really going on. It's like that's why know. I love the idea of you starting a show called The Word on the Street. It's like <laughs> you could literally go on the street once in a while and interview people. It would be dope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Word on the on, streets. You got to be on. Yeah. You got to be in these mean streets. Um, <laughs> it's like when they were talking about defund the police. OK. Um, I haven't owned a car for almost 20 years, man. I take public transportation and this and that. And so they're talking about defund. I, I ride the light rail, green line, blue line. I take the 18, the five. Shout out. Bus. <laughs> Shout out. Public transit. <laughs> I'm on, I uh, love public transit, man. I'm on. It uh, keeps you close. And I just want to interject this quick before yeah. you keep going. Keep your thought. But it keeps you close. I love the experience and the interaction I see and the gratitude it brings me. Not only does it help me slow down and be grounded in the moment, but it helps me be close to the, to the people. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you see what's really going on. I'm on that Lake Street, uh, that Lake Street uh, light rail station. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm there. That was right a block or two from where the riots um, started. Yeah, okay, I was there so too. So I'm, I'm six foot, almost six foot two. I think right now I'm big weighing dude, about one eighty five. Bigger yeah. than not, mo- most men for yeah. sure. Eighty percent of them. Yeah, and um, you know, I've had some people lately tell me like I look like a tough guy. I take that as a compliment. <laughs> like, yeah, I won't want to mess with you. And that's good because as a kid, man, I was soft as cotton. But, um, but I'm thinking, man, if I was like a white woman or some skinny white dude, I'd be scared to death, man, to be on these light rail trains and on this and this and that. But I would not. You you need law enforcement, man. You, I've seen some crazy things happening on, on these light rails, man. I seen it actually, man. On Winnie's grave two weeks ago, on Grandma Waddell's grave, I seen this dude, man, 25 years old, 
whip this dude he's about 70 years old whip his ass man on the bus station right across the street from the minneapolis public library on nicollet this dude was 25 years old threw him a couple threw him a couple shots man and then when he was down man kicked him in the head and kicked him i thought he killed the dude and i'm seeing man i hate that shit man being a guy that's been in jail i hate fucking violence yeah i I hate it it. too man i hate it too but and i'm looking at this and i'm thinking like are these people i think their heart is in the right place when they're talking about black lives matter and i understand that i will never understand and we need to defund the police but until you get out here man and you start seeing what's really going on you have a very limited scope of what's really going on here we'll wrap it up shortly but i want to touch on that quick and i think actually that i'm going to represent a counter perspective i'm going to represent the perspective of an organism if you picture an organism in its simple form right it would perish in an environment it can't protect itself right so like i think moving forward that we could have maybe a private police force and i've done a lot of research on this and moving forward where you have police forces in in local suburbs and areas that are policed by the people that live there and shout out to newark N-E-W-A-R-K, New York. They have a police force that's implementing this recently. And they actually, they have days where they they cook and barbecue and with the people and they hang out and the people come and they're seeing incredible results where the police have to not only live where they work, but they also have to interact with where they work and they have to be people. And then a large percentage of their police force, they've turned into uh, the minority. So they have a large percentage of their police force that's black, that's Asian, that is Pacific Islander. And they've diversified their ranks. And now since the people are from that city and they're a part of that city and they represent that city, they're seeing an absolute reduction. They haven't had to fire their guns once. I think they just fired them for the first time. But it's the first time in a city that has seen that where they haven't had to fire a gun even. And they're doing really well. And I think there's a big topic here about Yes, we need some kind of police force, but I think it could be privatized, it could be localized, and it could be much smaller, and it could be little subsets and environments. But I also just want to touch on this quick, is if you picture the organisms on their basic level, if an organism can't go out, I challenge people, it sounds selfish and egotistical, but I challenge you, if you can't fucking go out and you can't sustain on a fucking public transit, if you're someone that dies because you go and you ride the blue or the green line or the other bus in South Minneapolis, well, sorry to say, folks, that organism probably shouldn't, shouldn't be present. Like... It sounds egotistical, but on the basic level, like this is what I was talking about with COVID. Like if I get sick and die, I get sick and die. If I die from COVID, that's my day. But I'm confident enough in my strength, in my conditioning, that if I go ride a public transit or the blue line or green line, it's not going to kill me. (laughs) Like I know people that have never been outside of their box or their bubble, so they're afraid of it. Like you said, a woman or something, I understand that. But at the end of the day, if you can't sustain because your conditioning and fitness is so weak that you can't like I've been blessed. Like I've thrown myself in environments where I've almost could have died many times and I've sustained through it. So now I find lots of confidence in that. And I think if 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 you're afraid of riding the blue line and the green line, then you as an organism have a lot to go through and experience that you just haven't really challenged yourself and put yourself in challenging, difficult environments because to be honest and truthful like i agree with what you're saying for a woman but at the same time i completely disagree that i there's nowhere in minneapolis i I don't think anyone can go as far as the blue line the green line and and i think they want you to feel like that but i really don't i mean if you're a tough chick i was talking to my buddy about this the other day he was talking about a, a friend of his that got raped and i'm like man if i was a chick i would fucking be killing motherfuckers like when i was locked up in kentucky like 
I would, I fought 12 guys one on 12 before I was going to let anyone fucking put shit up my ass. Like if I'm going to die before I go to the, before I let someone take me without like, if I'm a chick, I, w- I think I'd be the same way. I think I would kill a motherfucker before he raped me. Like, I think there's a big topic here about resistance and about fight and about determination and will. Where, yeah, like, if, if someone just submits to someone that's trying to take them, of course they're going to continue to take them. But if you're someone that bites their fucking ear or bites their fucking neck, they're going to stop. So, like, I think there's a big topic there as far as, like, organisms that resist and repulse things in that fight back and are radical as opposed to something that just lets something happen but that's going back to bubbles you know i think we live in okay we live in a lot of these younger people a lot of uh, people are educated you know universities and this and that corporate america we're taught to talk things out we're taught to you know like i feel uncomfortable when you say that and this and you know they put people in check verbally, you know, this and this. That's the way things get done. I've seen things in corporate America where I'm like, man, if this was on the street, you would have got your ass beat right now. They'll say things, man, but they can get away with it because the game is played different. So you can't put somebody who's used to in those environments and put them in the streets, man, because, no, OK, you feel uncomfortable. Well, I'm glad to me. That's a sign that I'm going to, uh, you know. Yeah. So it's it's. <laughs> It's bubbles, so they can't relate to what's really going on. And just like you took somebody from the trains, from the streets, from the, you put them in the academic environment, they don't have the vocabulary, they don't have the social, most of them don't, some of them very uh, uh, intelligent, they don't have the social sense and the cues to fit in in that environment also. So it's like we're living in two different cultures, two I different societies. But I think what you're describing is the answer, right? It's bringing those together. It's the merge of them. And it's forcing them to interact, which is where the friction is, which is where the, the growth comes. Like... It's bringing those together and forcing them. But when do together. when do those societies interact with each other? You got that's all the exactly rich it. That's in, exactly yeah, it. It's in the don't. court. It's in the courtroom. <laughs> it's in the courtroom with the with the with the with the. It's, uh, in, the, it's in the courtroom. That's <laughs> all. Yeah. They, <laughs> but we okay. But people with money, man, they go to different schools. They go to different shopping centers. They live in different neighborhoods. The thing is, public transportation is so messed up because, man, if you got any money, man, the first thing you want to do is get a car, so you don't have to be on public transportation. I say this is going on another topic. That whole fuck the car trillion dollar. Um, it's one of the biggest topics. It, um, what is that? The trillion Biden's plan infrastructure. Okay, I think we do. What I would say, man, is we should like, you know, how they got the, the train in, in China, Japan, the bullet train, and they got all the great, um, man, they should really take that money and instead of giving it to all this other stuff, man, to really improve our infrastructure, like create really good public transportation from from major city to major city, 100% you know, agree with you. yeah, 100%. I, and it would help. They're talking about, um, you know, fighting pollution and this and that. Just think if public transportation was nice and free. So you're hitting it on the head. That is, this is the inefficiencies of government, though. This is what I agree with you on 100%, Mr. Kid, is that if they took all the money that they're talking about, they could even take 50% of it. And they could just put 100% of it into public transportation. And I agree with you 100%. And it would overcome the obstacle. It's so simple. But they're going to complicate it. And they're going to spread it all over these other programs. Because they don't want to. They want to They want to act like they're pr- trying to solve the problem. But they're going to perpetuate the problem. Because like you just said. You could solve it quick. Build up. in. All you have to do is build up public transportation. Make it nice and fancy. So it can go at. So there's transportation between all major cities, like build a train from Duluth to Minneapolis and have a blue line and a green line that stops in Duluth 
and it it's it it's stops in maybe Big Lake or it stops in maybe Blaine and then it goes to the Twin Cities and, and then you make do it, that make it free and make it free make it free exactly and you, that means all, all these cars and all this pollution people would stop buying cars you would solve like half 60% of the problem and you give a majority of people a ton of money back because if you yeah. eliminate the car payment you eliminate car insurance and you eliminate gas you're talking an uh, incredible amount of money for people. And think about how many real jobs you would create on all these programs. You know, I mean, you need electricians, you need uh, construction workers. Instead of giving people, you know, these handout checks, you'd actually putting them to work. It would it would solve a lot of the problems, but like I don't think they really want to solve a lot of the problems. Exactly, I think you're totally right, Mister Kid. I think they're gonna want to. They don't want to solve it quickly. Like I, the more I get educated, the more I look at politics as like it's it's not an accident, right? And I start to realize that elections aren't something that we really control. And the blue party and the red party, the more you educate yourself and you do the research, academia, politicians, and economists are all part of the the course of monopolist right it, when the country and culture started back when they created the economist and the academia and the schools were all part of this the wealthy families and that's who created they understand they created the system so at the end of the day blue is red and red is blue if you think about red capitalism feeds inequity and it feeds competition which then also feeds blue right because if you if you have a system that every time you elect a, elect a red president it creates in in, in in inequities and it creates competition and the majority of the money goes to the businesses but the people don't make much money that feeds the need for more inequitable programs that feeds the blue side so in a way it's a big circle where it's like okay we have and it's no accident that they go back and forth between the two every four to eight years because that's what keeps the massive change from happening because if you have one party that continues to be pre- like you're they, they they're feeding the perpetual perpetuation of the problem and i really think that 100 that it's no accident that these these problems are still here and that they're being perpetuated and like like you just said like it's so simple. Why wouldn't they just put all the money into public transportation and solve the problem of car emissions and solve? It's so simple, so simple. But no, they want to complicate it and they want to take all this money and distribute it all these other places. It's just like the it's just like the bill for uh, COVID, right? Instead of giving all the money to us and American people, they did all these other complex, crazy things where they, like President Trump said, "Why is all this money going to foreign countries? Why is all this money going to all these other things? Why didn't 100% of the money go to the U.S. people?" So simple. All they could have come together and say, okay, this is for the people. Let's give them the money. Let's give 100% of this bill to the people. But no, they have to do all these complex, difficult, egotistical things. And I think that's big, man. If I had public transportation, man, I would love that. If I could hop on a train and go from Duluth to the Twin Cities, I would fucking love that. And if I could hop on a train and go from like the Twin Cities to LA or New York. And then think about as far as emissions, if it's you know, ninety percent of the jets in the airline. If we don't have that, I mean, it would it would solve a lot of the the problems facing the United States right now. Um, but you hit the head on the nail. I think um, you know we keep fight. I mean, we've been fighting about the same things, man. For like the dude, I remember being a child of the seventies, and they were still talking about abortion, gun gun rights. You know, this it's like the and we ne- and then we'll get it one way for about four or five years. 10 years and then it'll go then oh oh no now we got to have abortion and this and that these are micro issues macro issues right now man are the environment wealth inequality uh it seems like we're about to get in a war with somebody you know the military industrial complex race relations 
these are these are the big issues. It's, to me, man, it's like if somebody wants to have a gun or this and this and that, we can deal with that another time. If somebody wants to have an abortion, if somebody wants a sex change, those are micro. There's exactly. bigger issues right now. Exactly, and I think you touched on the head is that the micro of our government doesn't doesn't solve shit, and that gov- government at the end of the day really just perpetuates problems. It doesn't solve any problems really. It just micro perpetuates or it micro perpetuates the problem and macro perpetuates the problem. And once in a while, it might micro come up with like a good answer or solution in a micro sense. But in the macro, the government is not solving any problems or fixing any of our problems. It just perpetuates. So my question is this, is your generation going to be the generation that doesn't sell out and actually sees this, this system and everything for what it's worth and, you know, be true to it? Because it's like the 60s, man, they had that whole that revolution and, you know, protesting the war and all of this and it was great but then they knocked off like the main leaders of the you know the 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 revolution here in the states mlk kennedy uh robert kennedy um some jfk some of the black panther people uh malcolm x and then it was like there was no leader real leadership or watered down leadership but what gets me is like all the people in this back in the 60s who are fighting for this are now in their late 60s and 70s and all their work most of them they sold out man they're worried about their 401k they're worried about their vacation spot where where they're going to retire you think your generation is going to be different here's the thing i want to say on that i don't think it's mine i think it's the one after me i think it's the generation that's transient and transhuman the more I detach from my personal perspective, it's the more I lean into objective perspective. And the science of it tells me that the generation that represents this is the one that is becoming transhuman. And transhuman would be accepting the transition to humans that are neutral sexes and that are changing their sexes. Because the more I re- read about it and study it, is a neutral sex and a, and a transhuman is the one that represents the future of a neutral universe. And I think that we're so close, it's not even funny. But I don't think it's my generation. I was born in 91, which would make me a millennial, I believe. And I think it's the one after me, I think. But I think millennials and... Hold on, hold on. It's based because of their sexuality? Well, based on the characteristics of the research I've done, that represents the characteristics of the next society that we have when we become transhuman. So transsexuals represent that characteristic of transhuman in the next society. How do you define transhuman? Transhuman is one that is tra- it, it doesn't it's neutral. It's not identifying as itself. It's like detached from ego. It's become godlike and if you become godlike and you elevate, you become it's less about subjective self and more about the objective data. So it's like dataism. So it's like you become more data. It's like an or it's like a human becoming it's a more optimized self where it's all pure data and it's objective and it's detached from ego and self. And it's more just processing. It's become a dynamic processing system of data where it's using mathematics and algorithms and com- complex computations of qualitative and quantitative data in a, in, it's comprehending it in an objective neutral sense and it's that's what makes it somewhat transhuman where it's leaning into objective data in a dynamic fashion and it's detaching from its it's like subjective homo sapien self so that's what transhuman to me would mean and like that's so that's the generation you have faith in I have faith in the millennials and I think that yes I think this gener- my generation and the one after me represents 
will represent those changes and will accept them the most. And I think people like my dad, I love him to death, but I don't think baby boomers are going to be the ones that are going to lead us to that future. I think it's going to be people that are millennials and what, what's what's after millennial? Y? X or y, y or Z? I don't know what's after millennial, but yeah. I think it's, it's a Y. Well, I tell you this, from Generation X, I mean, we grew up to, you know, public enemy, fight the power, you know, uh, this whole rebel thing and this and that, man, and most of us sold out, you know, and I, I get into it with people, man. Sold out is right. Yeah, I get into it because I'm like, we. so I remember you back in the day, how you talked about the man and this and this and that, and now you've become the man and, you know, fight the power and all of this and question authority. They're submitting. But it's like, I think you become so invested in the system it's like the Matrix, where they, he says some of these people are so deep into this, they'll fight and die for the system. They're so deep into what they've invested in their homes, their education, their career, their 401k, that becomes their life. And so, like, if you want to change that, if you want to, that's going to mess their thing up, and they don't want their thing messed up. They'll wait maybe to the next generation. But it's... um. That's really cool yeah. stuff to talk about. I think that's really interesting, and I think you're right, man. I think everyone's sold out. I think people are sold out, and they're submissive, and they're being little bitches. They're saying yes to the little bitch inside, and then they sit and they talk about things like they stand for all this evolutionary equality, but at the end of the day, they're selfish, and when it comes down to it, they're not sharing of their most intimate resources. They're not sharing their home. They're not sharing their shelter. They're not sharing their time, their energy, and their money with others in representing that equality, and people at the end of the day, if you're really someone that is about it about it like you said on one of our episodes are you about it about it or are you not about it about it like you can't sit there and have a hoarded pile of money and have millions of dollars in your bank account and be a white family in south minneapolis and then wear a black lives matters t-shirt by day and act like you're someone that's representing that equality just because you wear that shirt and say that thing but at the end of the day you're you're funding the taxes and you're funding the system that perpetuates the need to wear that shirt and you're you're it's like it's like essentially i think a lot of people don't want to accept it but essentially they're they're essentially like ku klux klan members and they don't even realize it like it's kind of heavy to say but like if you're funding the imagine if someone was funding the ku klux klan with taxes by day because the job they work and then by night they they act like they're for equality like how can you fund the problem and then I, I just don't see it and I think so many of us don't even realize it but we like liberals are the greatest example they think that they're for all these equality systems but they're not really living it like how can you be someone that goes to college and and gets a degree and is partaking in the entire system that represents all this and then you don't represent anything unique or you like what about you are you doing that's unique and disruptive to the system and what about you is unique and outlier like and radical like in disrupting and changing the system and problem that you so much claim to be about changing like the easiest thing to do is say something and protest like i can say something and protest once every so often the hard part that's why i think protesting is a big topic is is not the protesting it's actual change it's being the one that represents it day by night day by night night by day and you're representing that change and you're living in a radical fashion and you're trying to disrupt the system and change it and be insurgent like and there's so few people that actually do that they go and they protest at these protests and they they scream and they yell and then they go back to their nine to five day job 
But like, yeah, I think the only way we're really ever going to see change. I mean, you know, you got a, you got a few people that are really, you know, walking it like they talk it. But until like there's a mass, what is that called? A mass strike where everybody's like, you know what? This is this whole th- system is messed up. Nobody's going to work. The banker ain't going to work. The nurse ain't going to work. The teacher ain't going to work. The di- Everybody just says, you know what? Until something changes. But people don't want to do that because that's going to their, affect their money. man. And that's that, what's so interesting about what's yeah. happening right now is it's kind of like a micro pocket. I think of what you're saying is we had a period where people had a little bit of money to take care of their basic needs and now they're trying to open the system back up and there's a labor shortage and once they realize that they're going to have to increase wages it's it just looks like modern day slavery when you look at these red states that are withdrawing unemployment funds it's like it's like a slave lord opening back up its businesses and it doesn't have its minimum wage workers to run its for its facilities and maintain its fortunes and it's it's withdrawing the unemployment and now it's trying to force that person back into a monotonous odious task that depletes them of their energy and their abilities to deviate from the mean and be a radical that changes the system because if you think about it humans if we really loved each other and leaned into it we are meant to be disruptors and changers and innovators and dreamers and creators we're not supposed to spend our time tilling for cotton or tilling for soil or digging holes we're supposed to be the creatures that are representing social innovative change and like creating tools and inventing tools like that's what our that's what our number one tool is and it's what makes us unique and special so why would we take our creatures like us that are almost godlike in in our creativity and, and imagination, and take them and have them operate a fryer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. But I mean, it's um, it's a complex topic. But but there, don't you think that it's monotonous, odious labor though that they're trying to specifically control us and limit us to? Um. Just yeah. To a certain percentage of the population. Yeah. Um. But there was, I don't know, there was a philosopher, economics philosopher, who talked about um, we were going to get to a point in time where people were going to have the free time they always wished they would have on their hands and how would they spend that free time. And we want to think, okay, virtue, you know, we're going to read, we're going to get educated with this and that. But how do you think the way where most people are programmed it's Netflix. It's video games. It's you know. It's living in and it's getting drunk at the pub. It's watching the big game. Yeah, so even if they point. have more that's free time, point. are they going to get really grow emotionally or spiritually? That's so why not gr- keep them at the fryer. That's a great point, Mister Kidden. And we can wrap it up with that. Is yeah, I got to hit these mean streets. Is, still, is, is our free time tells us a lot about ourselves? Is right. it like a lot of us? You're right. We're to a, we're in a space where we're not healthy enough and we're not actually living in abundance. So we don't have abundance. Where if you give us our free time, we just fucking dwindle it. We fucking twiddle our thumbs and masturbate and watch porn and take drugs and get drunk. So I think our free time Don't really forget tells about us Netflix. our free time really tells us about ourselves because someone that's really elevated will will use their free time to like try and elevate and and share and prosperity and do things that change and impact the world and they're not going to just spend their free time fucking watching porn and masturbating and watching aimless pointless videos that is a sign to me there's a direct correlation between what i do with my free time and my level of intellect my level of like self-awareness and my level of consciousness because at the end of the day people that aren't conscious they like our free time our, our our time is our most valuable resource so what we spend our free time doing says so much about us as a species and so much about us as the organism but that goes back to education if we teach our young people 
virtue, empathy, you know, uh, truth, this and that. Okay, so when we get a free time on our hands, when we're busting one off to Pornhub, we're going to feel guilty and conscious about that because we've learned as a kid that, you know, what is really important. But if we never learn that, you know, why not hit all those sites? Why not just get drunk? Why not smoke one up, watch the game, get on the mat and this and that? And um, I don't know. I think with that, man, these blue skies here in Duluth. Time to wrap it up. You know, these mean streets is calling Mr. Kid, man. I got to I got to get out there by the chub, man, and see what's going Bust on. Bust a move. <laughs> Go see what the word on the streets is. Well, I really appreciate you coming in here. And at the end of the day, I think you're right, man. I think it comes down to our transparent truth and finding a way to shine a light on that as much as possible, not only in ourself, but also shining a light on that in our in our centralized structure of society and shining a light on the coercive manipulative forces that are at play in our society and I and the inequities of them because I think if people don't realize enough how the transparent truth of our society and self will really bring us to our highest conscious self and that is to me like you're right 100% the solution okay J-Dub why I got you on the air man why all right here I, I need to ask you a question when I'm out back in the classroom next year be it Southern Florida, be it internationally, you're going to come in for one or two days and talk with my with my kids, with my students. Yeah. Is that a, is, is that a real year? Is that a hell yeah? I would love, right, I, would be, it, I, would, I would be honored to talk okay, to the all youth. Right. All right. I would be honored. Okay. So I'm conducting, got, I'm trust me, I promise you there's no one conducting more research currently than me. I'm, I'm working on some pretty big quantum physics solutions here that I would, I'm going to be in the near future sharing with the, the world. Thanks for tuning in. Your attention is our oxygen. Please continue to like, share, subscribe, and download. It means a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.